Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we are in this amazing, wonderful uh, story, this book of the people, this clan that we've been hanging out with for the entire book of Breshit, of Genesis, um, as they become not only a clan, but as they become a people, right? As they become a nation. This is our national uh, foundation story. Uh, it is known to us. All of, all of you know, right, most of, most of the general gist of this beginning part of the book of Shemot. So, of course, we're going to take time to focus on the little nuances that we don't often uh, know. So I want to go a little bit quicker through the very, very, very beginning, which is unlike me, I know, um, so that we can get to the really cool stuff um, a little bit further in. All right, so who would like to begin, please, verse 1 of chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each coming with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, God, and Asher. The total number of persons that were of Jacob's issue came to 70, Joseph being already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the Israelites were fertile and prolific. They multiplied and increased very greatly, so that the land was filled with them. All right. So we have this situation of the clan that came down at the end of Genesis, uh, as we know was common. They came down from Canaan uh, as a result of famine and came into northern Egypt where food is still often plentiful because of the Nile being the source of irrigation. So they come down, they settle there. Joseph was the big guy, uh, right? Big honcho in Egypt. And so now we're getting uh, a recap of the situation very briefly in that Joseph dies, all his brothers die, and that entire generation. And the Israelites were fertile and prolific, right? So they are doing well. And they multiplied and increased so much that the land was filled with them. All right, somebody want to read it? Eight. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them so that they may not increase. Otherwise, in the event of war, they may join our enemies in fighting against us and rise from the ground. So they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built garrison cities for Pharaoh, Hittim and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and spread out so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. All right. So, so there comes to power, there begins the reign of a melech, of a king, a new king, uh, over Mitzrayim. This is the first occurrence of the verb yada, lada, to know uh, in, uh, in the book of Exodus, who did not know Yosef. What, what do we know about the word to know in Hebrew? Oh, it has a sexual connotation. Sometimes it has a sexual connotation because... What's the sexual connotation from? 
well, to know as in, as in uh, knowing uh, somebody who you're sleeping with. So it's a different kind of knowing it's a more than, oh, I know him. Right, it's, a more in, it's more intimate. So when we see this word in Hebrew, right, it indicates a sense of intimacy, you know, a sense of truly knowing someone. So this is not saying that, that this king had never heard of Joseph. That is not what it means, right? It's that he did not know Yosef. So either he didn't know how wonderful, right, Yosef had been to Egypt or didn't care. It, but it's also possible, since we know how long, we, we're, we're told earlier how long the Israelites were going to be in Egypt. So this, if, we're, if we're starting this story now, this pharaoh is at least 10 generations, be, you know, or I don't know, 10, but many generations beyond the pharaoh that Joseph knew. So, and so, so you've, got a, you've got an enormous period of historical time. It's sort of like it's somebody growing up now who says, you know, well, I don't know Thomas Jefferson or something like that. So, so this dynasty does not care about the historical relationship between the benefactions of Yosef and the descendants of essentially Joseph, but it would have been called by his father, Yaakov, right? So th this dynasty doesn't care about that historical connection, that this clan that's now become so numerous had a really favorable relationship with a previous dynasty. Does not care. So we get a description here, which is interesting. This Melech, this king, says to the... To some of his people, Hine am b'nei Yisrael rav ve'atzum mimenu. Look, the Israelite people are too many for us. This is the first time that this group is called Israelites. Am b'nei Yisrael. So who was the first one to name the Israelites Israelites? The enemy. There is much study done about, right, when are we really Jews, when the enemy is defining, right, who we are. Who's a Jew? Ask the enemy. Right, that, you know, that, that it becomes definitive really by someone who's interested, and not in a good way, right, about, about these Israelites. So we look at the right of return to the land of Israel. How do we define who has a right to return to Israel as a Jew? How do we define it? Who's a Jew? Your mother is Jewish. Isn't that how we define it in Israel? Who has the right of return? Anyone who would have been murdered under Hitler has the right of return. Really? Yes. This is how it's defined. Right? So it's defined by who, who would have been defined as a Jew by the person who wants to eliminate the Jews. But that's a big issue going on in modern-day Israel right now. Who, who is a Jew? Yeah, yeah. You know, because only the Orthodox get to decide who is a Jew. But the state has decided whoever would have been murdered under Hitler has the right of return. Really? Is that the gypsies? If you had a grand, a grand one, grandparent who was Jewish, then you so it's, I'm just saying, it's interesting that we, like, it still continues to be a 
definer, right? That it's not, it's not really often us, it's, it's yeah. who defines us as the enemy, in a sense. Well, also, isn't it true that, I'm not sure if this is true, but I've heard it said that in the Holocaust, even if you said you weren't Jewish, if the, the Nazis believed you were, you couldn't get out of it. Like, Correct. Even Correct. if you said you weren't Jewish, they still would define you. Correct. Right, so, so the pro- one of the challenges in Israel is people who don't identify as Jews but want out of where they are. That would, that would be a lot of the Jews from the form, former Soviet Correct. Union who Correct. immigrated to Israel Correct. but didn't really think of themselves as Jews That's a huge until issue. they wanted to emigrate out of Israel. That's exactly uh, out right. Of, uh, the former Soviet Which is different from status, religious status. Right? In that sense, what you're talking about is religious status among the Orthodox community. They right determine it you would have to convert to have religious status with them, right? Which is different. Which is different. Okay. Right. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. All right. So in in any case, the 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 Pharaoh decides, right, that how are, what, what's the issue? The issue is that they are so numerous that if Pharaoh should incur a, an enemy, then possibly the Israelites could be persuaded to fight with that enemy against the Pharaoh, and therefore uh, they need to be dealt with, yes? So they, verse 11, they put over them taskmasters, to oppress them with indentured servitude, right, and, and uh, forced labor. And they built the garrison cities for Pharaoh, Pitom, and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they increased, right, and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Yeah, question. Yes. In our history, we were always expelled. Why weren't, why didn't the Pharaoh just expel us? Good question. Why do you think? They want to make slaves. So public building projects in the ancient world were done by people who didn't really have an option. Sometimes it was rotating, right? You, each district had to provide a certain amount of workers. Um, it's kind of a labor tax, if you will. Um, often it was, you know, people that didn't have a choice and were now so poor. Um, and or marginalized that this is what they were forced to do. Where does real history diverge from this story? Huh. Huh. (laughs) Interesting question. So that brings us to the whole question of the historicity of the Exodus, which is a huge issue and a huge question and a major button, hot button for a lot of even progressive Jews, um, we're not sure where the origins of the story are historically. We're not sure. There's lots of attempts, obviously, to identify the pharaoh of the Exodus in Egyptian history. And any argument you come up with can easily be refuted. So there's, there's not a good historical basis or, or understanding or agreement on when 
this would be. Um, scholars argue, right, hotly about the topic. Um, it's one of it's one of the things that frankly interests me a lot. Like, I, if I did a PhD in Bible, it would be on on some of this material, on, on the Hyksos, on lots of lots of possibilities around Moshe and being a prince of Egypt who leaves because he believes in one God is awfully close to Ankenaten, right? You know, one of the pharaohs who believes in one God and then is kicked out, right? He's in the pharaoh's palace and Lee. I mean, there's just, there's just so much that's fascinating to me about this material. There's not, there's not a lot of agreement. So what I'm going to say is what we have is our mythic history. Yeah. Um, we have elements of actual lived archaeological history that, that are here, but, n but not enough for everyone to agree. Oh, absolutely, 100%, this is when it is, even if they tell you. Were there Jews even down in Egypt? I mean, is there any evidence that there were Jews who went down? So define Jews. What oh, are Jews? I don't know. The, the, the what are, I'm serious. The this becomes the issue. What are Jews? Yeah. Jews are not Jews. There is no Jews. Yeah. There's Israelites. Well, what are Israelites? A Semitic clan, right? So they look at Egyptian art and hieroglyphics and all of that to locate Semitic peoples living in Egypt. There is certainly pictorial evidence for Semites in Egypt. Are those our Semites? Right? So, because we don't know what our Semites would have been identified as. But if you watch one of those shows called, like, Mysteries of the Bible, right? I love that stuff. Um, <laughs> on a &E, Mysteries of the Bible had a whole, you know, huge episode on the Exodus. Um, and so... You know, kind of trying to identify Semitic clans that were there, and from the evidence, what does it mean? And and they have their whole idea about. And then there's this legend, you know, that's recorded of a battle at a body of water. And you know, I mean, so you can you can take a lot of things and make it evidence for the Exodus. For me, what remains most important is that this is our foundation narrative as a people not the historicity. And a lot of people disagree with me on that. Somebody <clears throat> I'm very close to in the congregation and I had this whole huge discussion. She was horrified, horrified that maybe I was suggesting it didn't exactly happen. I mean, there's no record, let's put it this way. There's no record anywhere in the Egyptian history, there's no record of the entire slave population of Egypt standing up and walking out one day. The entire economic system of Egypt would have collapsed. It did not happen the way we have it here, right? This is our narrative about it. Now, what are the historical kernels of a group, a band, you know, that somehow follows this charismatic leader and decides to, to take off and to leave? Okay, so, you know, that, that's... And then hooks up with another group in the desert, right? And they become this... They, probably something like that. Is, um, is there anything of that from, say, the Egyptian side? I know you were talking about they didn't have record slaves, but is there any mention of, like, a quote-unquote slave revolt? There isn't. Huh. That would match this. Right. So again, there's this battle at a body of water, and there's some, you know, indication of you know, some ways that might match up to 
our story, but there is not like the, you know, there was this huge slave rebellion and they left and there was sickness and death in Egypt. Like there's no, there's no such record. Is there record. any other historical stuff around that time that's solid? Or is I'm, it, I'm sorry? Any other historical information around that time that's solid aside from just the Jews leaving? I mean, that's solid? Yeah. From that's, our that's, story? No, not from your story. Just, yep, yeah, just I history just, that's concrete and no, around so, that so again, same time. So what time? Well, the time. Well, <laughs> what time? <laughs> that's, that's the problem. What time? Where, where are you going to place well, it? People look at Ramses and say this must be Ramses the second, and therefore it's got to be twenty five hundred BC or whatever you know, the dates are. Then someone else says, no, you have to look at you know X, Y, and Z, and that means it's a different date. And then if you count this way, it's got. I mean, so it it becomes a question of yeah. when are we talking about? Right at all, I mean, you know, we have some parameters just because of the the culture of Egypt and what would have been, you know, what would have been appropriate to our story. Um, but it's a pretty wide range uh, of time. So again, the for me, and this is a big issue, and I don't mean to belittle it. I do want to get to these amazing texts, but what's important for me is that this is the story we continue to tell about ourselves, which is not that we were the biggest and the smartest and the best and we beat up everybody else in the region, right? And conquered because we rule, right? And we are God's strong people that took over because God gave us the power, right? That is not our story. I continue to find it deeply, deeply meaningful as a Jew that our story that we continue to tell is that we started as nothing as a people. We started as slaves to Pharaoh in a foreign land where we had no rights, no, no protection, right? no status, and that we locate our origins there, for me, is definitive of what it means to be a Jew. Because it always says you can't ever otherize and say if only, right? If only those poor people in LA would pick themselves up by the bootstraps and work hard, right? And apply themselves, they could climb out of poverty, right? Or somehow they deserve it because the color of their skin is such that they were meant to be slaves, right? Our foundation narrative says you were slaves in the land of Egypt. And therefore, think of all the things that follow from that. You can never otherwise. It was you. And you didn't earn it, and you didn't do anything on your own to get out. I, Adonai, brought you out of Egypt. So, this, for me, that is, it continues to be um, something I'm deeply proud of. Uh, something that I want us to remind ourselves of always as the wealthiest country in the history of the universe. Um, and uh, there you go. All right, so let's also look at some other things I love about this story. Go to verse 15. Someone started at 15. <clears throat> they made their lives bitter. Oh, we didn't read that. <laughs> right here we get the maror. So look, look at verse 14. Do you see that? The first word in the Hebrew, if you read Hebrew at all, 
The first word of 14, Vayimaruru et chayehem. They made their lives maror. Vayimaruru, right? They horseradished their lives, right? I love that horseradish. Right? So it's a, so with kasha, like with hard labor, right? So you can imagine hard labor, right? Terrible, terrible, terrible conditions. Uh, working in the fields, which would have been brutal in the heat, right? So really, really brutal, physical, uh, hard labor. All right, someone read at 15. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, saying, when you deliver the Hebrew women, look at the birth stool. If it is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, fearing God, did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing, letting the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous. Before the midwives can come to them, they have given birth. And God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and increased greatly. And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every boy that is born you shall throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Our hero story, this is our hero narrative. We are getting the origins of the hero Moshe. In every hero narrative, the infant must be born into a situation of danger. danger. Mortal danger. Hercules and the snakes, right? You have to have the hero born into mortal danger. So our hero narrative should begin with, and Yocheved, wife of Avram, gave birth to a boy, right? That is not the beginning of our hero story, interestingly enough. What is the beginning of our narrative? The king of Egypt spoke to Miel of Dota Ivriot, the Hebrew midwives, and makes an order, right, about killing male children. And their response, which we're going to get to, right, is a absolute defiance of such an immoral command, that is the origin of our hero. Not pregnancy. Right? Our story starts with a moral resistance to an immoral injunction. This is the origins of Moshe. And who are the ones who achieve it, who do it? Women. This is our foundation narrative about our hero. Yes? Is that women defy Pharaoh. This is the first civil disobedience in the Bible. Direct opposition to someone who could have them dead. Right? So who are these women? It says they are the Hebrew midwives. Tell me what that means. Who are they? Are they Hebrews? Because it says Hebrew midwives. It could be that these are Egyptian midwives assigned to the Hebrews. The Hebrew midwives. 
Because why would Pharaoh expect Hebrew women to follow the law to murder Hebrew boy babies? It is likely, therefore, that they are Egyptian, assigned to the Hebrews. Possibly. Possibly they are Hebrew women who go up against Pharaoh. Personally, I prefer that they are Egyptian. That's, my, that's the version I like. Um, because it's easy on some level, er, right, to have them defy Pharaoh if they're Hebrews being asked to murder their own people, right? There's something else that happens when they are righteous Egyptian women who risk their own lives because they understand no matter how much you vilify and demonize this population, you cannot murder babies. There's a, there's a limit, right? There's a line over which they will not step, and that seems to be it. <clears throat> but, if the, but if the relationship between uh, Pharaoh and the Israelites has deteriorated to the point that it has... Why are they being? Why are the Israelites being granted midwives anyway? Especially well, if they're Egyptian. In this case, one would presume that a it's either normative, uh, but b is that they're being assigned in order oh, to, order to carry out, exactly to, to affect Pharaoh's orders. I see. Exactly. Um, so, in any case, when you deliver the Hebrew women, their orders are very clear, right? You look at the birth stool. Remember, women would have given birth on. Something they would have leaned, you know, this sat on something, and the midwife would have gotten the baby from underneath. You look, and if it's a boy, you kill it. If it's a girl, let it live. Many midrashim around this. One uh, of my favorites is that Miriam, uh, Miriam's parents decide to, and many of the men decide to stop having intercourse because. If their wives get pregnant, it's going to result in murder of the male babies. And Miriam famously says, well, Pharaoh's only killing the boys. You are killing the boys and the girls. And makes this argument for the men to return to their wives. There's a lovely set of midrashim that I taught one year for the women's Passover learning uh, session, and that is that the women, uh, the Hebrew women would take mirrors and they would go down to where their husbands were working in the field and they would play a little game with them of I'm more beautiful than you and he would say no you're not, I'm more beautiful than you and they would bring wine, they fished for little fishes and they sold those fishes and got wine so that they got their husbands a little drunk uh, and seduced them with this little game with their mirrors and it is in this way that that they continued to have babies, girl babies. All right. Anyway, so so when my so there's lots of one thing is there's lots of midrashim around this. You know, kill the boys, let the girls live. Then it opens up this whole world for the rabbis that they read about the righteousness of the women. Right? That it's in one case it's Miriam, in the other case it's the Hebrew women. But it's always the women, right, who are the <laughs> ones affecting the fertility of the people in these midrashim. The midwives, fearing God, Elohim here, did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So some see this as an indication that these are, in fact, Hebrew women, Hebrew women because they fear uh, <clears throat> Elohim. Others say, well, don't read Elohim, capital E. Hmm. Right? Read 
they feared even their own gods. Like that they understood that this was just horrifying, right? That they that they couldn't do it. In any case, they are God fearing, right? They are. And remember, in the Hebrew, the word fear is is related to the word awe. It's the same word, right? So they they are people who are in relationship to the divinity, whatever that divinity is, with a relationship of awe, right? So they defy Pharaoh's orders. So the king of Egypt summons the midwives. They've been summoned to the palace. The SS rounds them up and brings them to the Gestapo. Right, so just imagine for a moment that scene, because we always read over it really quickly. Imagine that scene. They stand before the throne, or a representative of the throne, it doesn't matter, and they are questioned. Why have you done this thing, letting the boys live? What have you done? You know, answer for yourselves. And what do they say? I don't know what you would do in that moment, but <laughs> words would leave me, right? They, what is their answer? Because uh, we thought it was wrong. Okay, what them. is that going to get them? Dead, right? So what do they do? What do they do here? The Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, they say to Pharaoh. They are, Vigorous. what does your translation say? Vigorous. <laughs> they are vigorous. Okay, love that. Um, what it says is ki chayot hena. They are like beasts. Right? They are like beasts, essentially. Before a midwife can even get there, they drop their baby in the field. So what have they effectively just done? How'd they get around him? What have they used? They blame the victim. They blame the woman. They blame the victim. They blame the woman. But why does that get them off? How does that get them off? Because they're not making a decision. The baby is born. There's something that just happens without them being there. They use Pharaoh's racism against him. They are not like German women. These Hebrew women. Right? They're like cows. They're like cattle. We can't even get there. Right? And, and they've already had their babies. So using, I mean, it's brilliant, brilliant, using Pharaoh's own anti-Israelite narrative against him. And clearly it works. Right? Clearly it works because they leave. Right? And God dealt well with the midwives. Even God was happy. And even God was happy. With that story, yeah. Right? With that story. Um, and again, it's Elohim here. Uh, and the people multiplied and increased greatly. And because the midwives feared God, what did God do for them? Vayas lahem batim. God made for them, and interestingly enough, this to them, this is them masculine. God made to them masculine batim, households. What is that? He married them off. God married them off. Okay. 
To whom? <laughs> right? In any case, what is interesting, um, what's interesting is that they become heads of household, which is usually a male, a male woman. They become, right, heads of, they have a bite, a, a house. I have a question. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to be nitpicky, but it But it's our study, so... Of course. <laughs> Are the midwives supposed to kill the babies as they emerge from... After it, right after it's born. Okay, so if it's right after they're born, then as the midwives come to where the babies are, have just been born, why don't they kill them then? Clearly, they're suggesting they can't get there before the women have whisked them off somewhere. Ah. They're gone. Like they get there and she's already given birth, <laughs> meaning they don't have access to the infant. It's already born. Right. Okay. I, I mean, you. I'm assuming because. And how do they know it's born? I mean, if the baby's gone, the mother takes them. No, they, they, uh, they don't say it's a boy. Matter. They say we can't get there before they've already dropped these babies. But somebody knows boys are being born and not killed. So why not kill them at one year? six months like she says well because so, clearly they're not reporting in that they have successfully murdered how many right there's all these pregnancy i mean there's all these pregnancies that are are not ending with the midwives reporting in right that they the statistical office the is statistical unhappy. data is unhappy. are not adding up right. Right. exactly these, these uh, women these women are such pious, such animals, that they just pick up their babies and run away. Because they can do that, right? They just drop them and go. <laughs> See, I, I, thought, I thought of that as a compliment when I first heard Oh, yeah. I thought about, like, even when you say beast, like, the teenagers today, they say you're a beast, that's a compliment. So is being a cool right? You're strong and you're vigorous and you're confident. That's hilarious. So, so these Hebrew women, they knew how to take care of themselves. That's right, and and on and on some level, it, and on some level, it's not untrue, right? Right, that they are strong and right. So, which is again amazing use of language, and all of that by the midwives. They're not really lying, right? You know, these are vigorous, strong, right? So lovely, but they use it, right? Because Pharaoh doesn't think beast is a compliment. Pharaoh wants to hear it the way Pharaoh wants to hear it. Ph Pharaoh thinks of Egyptian women, you know, what makes them... They're less than. They're, you know, they're dainty, they're... You know, they're milk bath. Right, exactly, milk bath. So, so this is interesting that we get this about the midwives. And then Pharaoh charges all the people. He realizes, right, he's, he's got to expand who's responsible for murdering these babies. And so he goes to all the people saying, every boy that is born, you shall throw into the Nile, but every girl you shall let live. So, so what he ends up doing is he sort of completes the corruption of Egyptian society by forcing everybody to be a participant in the mass murder. Nazi occupied Europe, right? You don't report a Jew, you and your whole family are executed. Yes, so it's, it is, yes, complete corruption of, Israel, uh, Israel, Egyptian. of Egyptian society. 
by making everyone responsible for the genocide um, of the Hebrews. Is there any parallel between the way this, this is story is being told and a plague story? It, tell me. Well, because it's just, it's just sort of the same thing repeated and stronger and yet the outcome is not what you expect. It, it, it sounds like another version of, <clears throat> of the plague story. Nice. Nice. To me. So the murdering, right? Obviously yeah, goes, yeah, okay, well then now I'm going to have to the end. Okay, yeah. The death of the firstborn. Yeah, my, my, my heart is still hard, and I've you know, got another angle on the same deal. <laughs> Pharaoh doesn't change much, huh? No. If this didn't work... Different Pharaoh, but it... it I'll try that. It sounds like the same kind of a telling of the tale. Okay. Um, so the Nile is the symbol of what in Egypt? Life. Life. How are you going to affect the destruction right, of... This people you're going to take your life, right, and put it in the Nile to murder it, right? So this kind of juxtaposition. So in the Haggadah, when it says, and the rivers ran blood, does that refer to this? You better believe it has to do with the Nile that is the source of life becoming, in fact, a deliverer of death. Yes, hundred percent. It relates to the to the mythology of the Nile in Egypt. The Nile was a god. So when that becomes not water but blood, you now have the god of the Israelites, right, beating up the god of Egypt. All right, and it's symbolic at every level. It's not the water that's going to feed the people of Egypt. It will become the blood. That without which we die, right? So remember, blood was life in ancient in ancient times. The blood was the life force. Right. So someone read at two one. A certain member of the house of Levi went and married a woman of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw how beautiful he was, she hid him for three months. Keep going? Yes. When she could hide him no longer, she got a wicker basket for him and caulked it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child into it and placed it amongst the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister stationed herself at a distance to learn what would befall him. Okay. So we just got the decree that every boy is supposed to be thrown into the Nile. What happens with the girls? Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. They're not important. They're not going to fight in a war against Pharaoh, so Pharaoh writes them off. Pharaoh takes no, no heed of them, right? They're just girls. They're fine. You can let them live. But what are they going to do? What's about to happen? What sets everything in motion? What sets Moshe in motion? And ultimately destroys Pharaoh are women, the daughters. Women, the daughters. First of all, the daughter of, of Le Levi and Yocheved, right, Miriam. And the other is the daughter of Pharaoh. The daughter of this Hebrew couple and the daughter of Pharaoh are going to have an encounter which results in 
the saving of the life of the hero. Pharaoh has made a fatal mistake. He has underestimated the daughters. Two is peril. <laughs> you like that, eh? <laughs> And so it has always been. And so it has always been. <laughs> but anyone who wants to tell you the Bible is just a sexist, patriarchal rant, <laughs> has not done a close reading. So this certain man of Levi, why does he have to be from Levi? The priestly clan. The priestly clan has to be, right? Our hero has to be from the priestly clan. So he comes from Levi, and he takes a daughter from the tribe of Levi, who is not named here. And the woman bears, she conceives and bears a son. Vatereoto kitov who. She sees him, and what does she say? How beautiful. How beautiful. How beautiful. Kitov. Where else have we seen this? The, when God creates the days of the night. Oh. God creates the world. God creates humanity and says, Kitov. And then Tov Me'od. She bears, and she says, Kitov. Right? You cannot miss the resonance here of what this does to her, right? How this lifts her and this experience up. It is the universe reborn in the sense that he will be, right, the one to deliver, you know, the people from, from death and suffering. So she sees that he is Kitov, and she hides him for three months. But when she couldn't hide him, Ode, right, anymore, she gets tevat gome. She gets a teva. She gets a teva. I love my students who already here. Sometimes remember. <laughs> and sometimes remember. She gets a teva. And she cocks it with bitumen and pitch to waterproof it. She puts the child into it and places it among the reeds by the banks of Svata Yor, by the lips of the Yor. Mm -hmm. She hides him for three months. Presumably, she can't hide him right anymore. She's desperate. She's willing to risk everything, and the only way you're going to have life preserved under the threat of destruction, is to get a teva, mm -hmm. right? This is the only other time we see this word in the Torah other than the story of Noah. Noah. Oh. This is the same word for the ark. Oh, you, the teva. Oh. Destruction, death, you're going to save life from destruction, you get a teva. You put life in the teva and you put it on the water. Although we have slightly different versions. One says it's on Svat Hayor, the lips, the banks of the, of the Nile in the reeds. And another one, it seems to be that it's a more, more on the water in any case. The Nile that was supposed to be the agent of death for these baby boys, what is the only way Yocheved can save him? is to put him in 
the Nile, but with protection, something that will carry him. For me, this is one of the most profound metaphors that we have as a people, right? Because I think the teaching is so rich and so deep about what we fear will kill us, what we are sure will be our destruction, what is the teaching? You put something around you that will carry you and you move in. You go in. That is the only way. The question becomes, what is it that's the teva? And the rabbis have this beautiful midrash that teva means word. There's places where teva means word. So what do you think they do with that? You have to enter the teva. And when you fully enter the word, that is what holds us right in the yor, in the waters that are either life-giving or completely destructive. Because the yor is also the way he's saved. It's both. It's transportation to safety and, of course, an agent of destruction. They are always the same. You said something about, I'd like you to repeat that, what we fear. What we fear will destroy us. The only way to safety is to put oneself in something and enter those waters. That's the only way. And often it does destroy who we've been, right? As we become Yeah, you need to else. die to the old to be born to the new. Of course. Okay. So... She puts him in the Nile in which he was supposed to be drowned. <clears throat> and then what are we told? And his sister stationed herself at a distance. She's not named here. Neither is the mother. They are women. right? They are mom. They are sister. They are all mothers. They are all the sisters. This is the paradigmatic, right, ancestral mother and sister, protective forces. She stands at a distance to learn, ladea, to know, right? To know, what will be done to him. So somebody start at five. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the Nile while her maidens walked along the Nile. She spied the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to fetch it. When she opened it, she saw that it was a child, a boy, crying. She took pity on it and said, this must be a Hebrew child. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get you a Hebrew nurse to suckle the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter answered, yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, who made him her son. 
She named him Moses, explaining, I drew him out of the water. Okay. Fantastic, fantastic story. <coughs> Pharaoh's daughter went to bathe to the Nile. So clearly, this is a normal thing. It's not something that seems to be out of the norm. She goes to bathe by the Nile. And her maidens were walking along the Nile. And she saw the basket in the midst of the marsh. And she sent her maidservant, and she took it. So was she coming to bathe, truly to bathe? Was she coming to worship at the Nile? Both are possibilities, because we have Pharaoh doing this as well. Um, at some point. So is this, a, is this a ritual bath? And she's purifying herself for worship? We don't know. But she's clearly accompanied by servants, right? Her maidens are with her. Vatere et hateva betochasuf. And she sees, singular, the teva in the suf, in the reeds. So, how come the maidservants don't see the teva? Any ideas where the rabbis go with that? Maybe the maidservants did see the, see it, but they don't count because they're just servants. So, so they, they, what they see doesn't, doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay, it only matters that she saw. Okay. What if she's the only one who sees it? For the rabbis... Of course she's the only one who sees. She's the only one that has the ability to see. There's something special about her. That she's the only one able to see the Taylor. Yes? The Nativ and Rashi both suggest that there's something about her that enables her to see. Possibly... She sends the others ahead, right? And so she's alone. Because now we're going to get her acting, right? So, um, so in the Talmud, in the Talmud, we have a discussion. Look at verse 5. We have a wonderful discussion. She sees the Teva in the Suf. Vatishlach et Amata. She sent forth her, what does your translation say? Slave girl. Slave girl. Amata. And she took it. So the rabbis in the Talmud, Rabbi Judah and Rabbi Nehemia argue about the meaning of this word, and according to Rabbi Judah, it's not Amata, her slave girl, it's Amashela, her arm. Oh. <laughs> oh. She stretches forth her arm, and she takes the Teva. So, of course, the question then becomes, uh, how could she stretch forth her arm and get it, right? You know, it doesn't say she waded into the water. She says she sent her fit slave girl, which means you'd imagine the slave girl's like kind of swimming out to or climbing out to where it is, like to get it. If she stretches forth her arm, how is she supposed to 
reach it. And the Hafez Chaim teaches that she knew the Teva was too far to reach with her arm. She stretches her arm out anyway, and God creates a miracle. And her arm extends all the way out to where the Teva is so that she's able to bring it successfully in. For the Hafez Chaim, it is a miracle. It's God who affects Moshe's rescue. But the only way that can happen is for Bat Paro, the daughter of Pharaoh, to be moved to extend her arm. That creates the possibility, right, of the miracle. Even though it may seem to our human sensibilities that it is impossible to save a human life or achieve a goal, we must still reach out and make it But don't we see throughout uh, the Torah that that's, to some extent, that's, that's when miracles take place. Always. When you have a, one of the two parties, I mean, God is obviously one of the parties, but the other party always has to be, in some way, a willing participant. Yep. In that, in that, because stretching out your arm is a, that's like a royal prerogative. You know, it's people with power who stretch out their arms. It's people with power who have control. It's, but for other miracles, like we'll see later, it's sort of somebody has to be willing to step into the water. You know, those sorts of things. In the, in the rabbinic tradition, 100%. Mm-hmm. For them, Nachshon, right, affects the miracle of the ocean, I mean the ocean, the waters parting um, at the exodus, 100%. It is this act of reaching anyway, even though she knows she can't reach it, Reaching out anyway, this is what opens the possibility of the miracle. So she opens the teva, and what does our text tell us? She saw what? Vatir ehu et She saw the child, the boy. Vehine naar. And behold, it is a Nar, it's a young boy. So wh- why we know Torah is never, God forbid, redundant? It says yelled, and then it says Nar. She sees it. That she sees the baby. She sees which in he- Hebrew is literally the boy because it's a boy baby. And behine Nar, and behold, it's a male youth. This what? Is, this is a dangerous situation. This explain for Pharaoh's daughter. And it makes me think on a practical matter that all the slaves heard this baby crying, but they know the edict, and there's nothing that they can do about it. And it's only Pharaoh's daughter who would have the power and authority to act. So she could have ignored it as well. And by reaching out and bringing in the Teva, she's acting upon something against her father's edict. And this is, by saying it twice, this is a male child. This is a male child. She's ignoring all these warnings and is going to intercede. So the repetition of the fact that it is a boy is underscoring how defiant her action is. Okay. She is going completely against 
her father. She's going, therefore, against the law. Pharaoh in Egypt was a god. She has defied the ultimate authority. She hasn't done it yet. She's only taken it to open it to see what's in it. She's not yet done anything in complete defiance of Pharaoh. Right? So she sees that it's a baby, and the Nitziv, one of our famous commentators, suggests the reason we get a repetition is that she expected maybe an infant. What she doesn't expect is a three-month-old. A newborn that somebody put in the water, that she expected, a yelling. A boy child, that, that a boy infant, was not shocking to her. What, this is a beautiful reading by the Nitziv, what's shocking to her is, behold, it is a na'ar. It's three months old. It's been well fed. It's been well taken care of. She gets it in that moment that some other mother, some woman has cared for this infant for three months and then put him in a basket and floats him down the night. Do you think for a minute about a newborn and you think about a three-month-old? There is a huge difference already at three months. So she, so the Nitziv understands that she's kind of double hit. One, that it's a baby at all, but that it's been cared for by somebody for so long. It's this developed, it's this healthy, and she knows somebody had to let him go. And therefore, what is the next word? He, she sees that he's, she doesn't just see that it's a baby and that it's a boy, a boy crying. All of this together, this healthy, cared for infant that's now alone and some woman who's bereft because she's let him go because she had to and he's crying all of this. What does this result in? She took pity on She experiences the feeling of chemla, of compassion. Yes? She experiences compassion for this baby that she has been taught because we go on to see that she says, she says out loud, this must be a Hebrew child. What has she been taught to think about the Hebrews? They're beasts. They're beasts. How, how would they They're take animals. Care of, who would take care of a baby like this? But a person. They're not even human. But presumably she knows he's a Hebrew because he's circumcised? We do not know. We do not know. Well, she, she, I think she assumes that he's being hidden. There's evidence for circumcision in Egypt. Okay. Which, which is not then definitive. Um, that he is in a basket in the water suggests... Someone's trying to hide Someone's it. trying to hide it. Why would you put a three-month-old in a basket and set the basket on the wall? Like, who, 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 you'd just be crazy. Unless... Well, it's a Hebrew baby. Possibly, Hebrews are swaddled differently. 
than Egyptian babies, right? That, that whatever he's swaddled in is Hebrew stuff, Hebrew <laughs> material. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, it's a big magenta on his t-shirt. With a little less than that. All right, little drain, little drain, little drain. Nikki? What? Why now? You have Enoch, Yelid, Nahar. That seems like the, uh, that would be a much older... Uh... Yeah, so particularly in later Hebrew, yeah. there is no Tinoch in the Bible. Right? There's, so, so it's later Hebrew that really distinguishes Nahar as a teenager, as a male youth that way. It is used sometimes to mean a youth, um, which is one of the reasons I think the Nitziv reads it as she expected a baby. She didn't expect a baby that old. Um, but it's, it's, a good, it's a good point. Um, so in any case, she's, she's feeling chemla. She's feeling compassion. She identifies it as a Hebrew child. What does she do? What should she do? This is the moment you're talking of. She discovers that this is a Hebrew boy child. What is she supposed to do now? Turn the over. Listen to Miriam. <laughs> Miriam witnesses this moment. She sees exactly what's happening. She knows the next thing that could happen is that Pharaoh's daughter calls for the SS. She knows that. And what does she do? She suggests getting a, a, a Hebrew. Vatomer Achoto El Batpar O and his sister says to the daughter of Pharaoh, what the heck business does she have speaking to the daughter of Pharaoh? Yeah, why doesn't anybody say, who are you? Who are you? And she herself is Hebrew. She's a Hebrew child addressing the daughter of Pharaoh, the princess. This takes ultimate chutzpah. Yes? This is ultimate chutzpah. She, she's at that moment, that second of decision, and Miriam knows she has to act. Even if it means she will be, you know, like, she, addressing the daughter of Pharaoh, are you kidding? Someone would shoot her on sight, right? The, the princess is undefended. She's with her maidens. Somebody's gonna approach, are you kidding? Right, dead now. Totally dead now, right? But it doesn't happen because Miriam is brave and amazing and chutzpah And what does she suggest to the daughter of Pharaoh? Oh, I know of a woman. Why are you Hebrew nurse? She knew very well her mom was still nursing, so. She knew what? She knew that uh, her mom would, was, still had milk in her uh, breast. She right, so, but what is she suggesting to the daughter of Pharaoh right here? Needs need a nursemaid. No! I'm, I'm going to help you hide the kid. She's suggesting to Batpar, oh, you're going to save him. You're not going to kill him. And you're not going to call the SS. We're gonna she doesn't say, don't call the Gestapo. That's what she should be saying. Don't call the, the officials. Don't call the authorities. Wait, listen, right? She doesn't. Again, just like...
like Shifra and Hula, what does she do? She uses the princess's own natural chemla, compassion, to say, shall I fetch someone to feed him for you? probably selected that spot after observing the princess's character and habits. Because it was like a, like probably a, not in the Nile itself, which is crocodile infested, but probably in some rivulet of the Nile, which was relatively safe. Which is interesting because it says that Moses' mom somehow had a hope that this Egyptian princess would have compassion for her child, which is amazing to me. That the alliance of women superseded for both of them nationality, rank, status, law, any of it. That somehow Yocheved hoped that beating in the heart of Pharaoh's daughter is the same response to a vulnerable child, right? That she, she trusts on some level that that is more fundamental than fear for your own safety. And turns out, of course, to be accurate. It turns out to be true. That she takes the child, so she takes the child, and she calls Yocheved. She calls the child's mother. So Yocheved now is facing Bat Paro. Imagine that scene. Yocheved sees her son safe, is standing with Bat Paro, the princess, who says, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will pay your wages. In the ancient Near East, there are legal documents that describe paying a wet nurse's wages is one of the ways you claim possession of a child legally. Whoever pays the wages for the, nurse, for the nursing of the child, the wet nurse, is legally and officially the parent. So possibly this is the moment of legal adoption by Bat Paro of this baby. I read something recently that the princess was tired of, adopt, of worshiping idols, and she went into the Nile to kind of cleanse herself of all that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure. I mean, and I know where you learned that, right? So, and Chabad down the street, right? So, for the rabbis, of, of course, Bat Paro was a convert. She's doing mikvah in the Nile. So she can leave her idolatrous ways and become a true daughter of yud heh Of course. For the rabbis, the one who raises Moshe, 100%. This is mikvah. She's leaving idolatry. Right? It's so fantasy right? by the rabbis, which is fantastic in itself. I love that too. Don't get me wrong. But it's like... Really? I, for me, it takes away some of the power of the story. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it just yeah, takes away so the power of the story. She's yeah. Egyptian. Yeah. 
She risks everything for this baby with nothing other than a chemla driving her. Compassion. Listen to this quote by Harris, who just wrote this amazing, his last name is Harris, who wrote this amazing book on Moshe. Amazing book. In the brief moment described in this verse, the daughter of the most powerful emperor in the world stood face to face with an abandoned Hebrew baby boy condemned to die by her father's order. The seed of the overthrow of four centuries of slavery was planted. In the time it took for one young woman's heart to feel a pulse of compassion strong enough to evoke action, the gods of Egypt fell and the God of Israel entered the drama of history on the world stage as the champion of the oppressed. The revolution was born in the most unlikely of places inside his unnamed daughter's heart. Fantastic. There's also something wonderful about the way Miriam proposes this because she recognizes the, the power of the daughter of Pharaoh and gives her the question in such a way that it is the daughter's decision. Because she could have said, you know, I know somebody who can nurse this baby. Let, let me take him, let me yeah, take him to safety. Me, right, but she doesn't do that. She says, shall I go and get this person? And I think that's so beautifully diplomatic. Right? It's, it's fantastic. It is fantastic. It's the way she's making the decision for her. Yes. <laughs> yes. She makes the decision by speaking up. She too is risking, right? But doesn't ask, you know, can I? Right? It's not, can I save him? It's, can I help you? Take care of your child, right? Right? How how is she going to explain this to Pharaoh? How is the princess going to explain to Pharaoh that she now has an infant in the house? Who she clearly, because we read the end where it says, when he was weaned, she took him back to the palace. So he's presumably with Yochebed and Miriam until how old are you when you're weaned in the ancient world? Three, four, five, thirteen. Thirteen? <laughs> no, that's today. So, three, four, to thirty-five. Exactly. When they're done with their doctorate or their law degree. So, um, three, four, five. He's with them. He's with his birth family for three or four years. And then he's brought to the palace where the Baparo brings him in. Okay, question. Yeah. So there's this edict and, the, and Hebrew boys have to be killed in the Nile. So now this baby is back in its Hebrew home being nursed and is he not seen? And then what does the mother say? Whoa, this kid's being protected by Pharaoh's daughter. So practically, how does this work? Mm. Are you going to write the Midrash? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's an amazing set of questions. How is she going to explain this? You know, three, how's a three-month-old 
going to be safe as a Hebrew, right, in the compound, right, so in the slave quarters, and how is she going to show up with a three-year-old that has the status of being her son, who's raised in the palace? Does she hide him the whole time? Moshe goes out later, so it doesn't seem that he's a prisoner, that he's hidden, right? He, he walks out, and that's when he has the encounter with the taskmaster. So he's raised in the palace. As what? Once she adopts him, yeah. I think the palace would then see this baby as an Egyptian baby from that. Oh, you've adopted an infant at a time where boy babies are being drowned in the Nile. Yeah, that's plausible and safe. Well, other than Paro saying that to her, who would say that to her? Well, presumably Paro is the problem. You know, we don't know how close they are, how ah. he sees his daughter. Being a woman, she may be hidden with the harem, and, and, and he has no concern about daughters. But my guess is he would have concerns about male sons. You better know the status of males in the palace, particularly with murder rampant against the Pharaoh. I mean, history tells us, right? Pharaohs are on guard for their life all the time. And you've got a 15-year-old running around? Also, it's interesting to me that um, why was it necessary that he has a Hebrew nursemaid? Wouldn't it be easier to hide him if he had an Egyptian nursemaid? It's but Miriam was working already for the for the daughter. Miriam is the one. He's suggesting it, but the princess could have said, "Well, no, it would be easier for me to use so and so because she's already part of my household." And so, so now you have to hide the mother and the son. No, she, unless you send the son to the mother. That's right. So, uh, so she's not in the palace. Correct. Yeah, so I'll, I'll get you a Hebrew nursemaid, like a nanny, but she doesn't move in necessarily, the baby <clears throat> is. Because it says that okay. when, she, when he grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, okay. which suggests he's not with Pharaoh's daughter until he is weaned. If we look at the story being a symbolic story, yes, <laughs> here I come again. I know. Uh, if you, the fact that she reached out to me, the, the the daughter, is not what we need to do in life when we need to go and reach out to other people, not knowing what's going to happen, but finding the strength and listen to our heart, to our compassion, even though it's against all the rules or whatever it is uh, that is in, in, in our society, that we're going to do what the thing is the right thing to do. It's, to me, I see that more of a, if we really believe that this is what happened, Moses and all of that stuff, but I look at more of a symbolic Of course, story. of course, that, that, both. That's, that's, that's the story that I retain from that. Of course. And, and we have to nourish that, that compassionate part of us until it becomes, uh, it takes a while for really to own it, let's put it this way, to the courage <coughs> to do what... 100%. The rabbis have always understood it that way. In other words, because for them it's about the origins of Moshe, it's not in any way undercut or diminish 
The way Torah is true every day for all time. In other words, for them, just because it, it's an actual historical event that the Bat Paro reached out and saved Moshe, that does not in any way diminish for them that we are to take this as a constant teaching about are we reaching well, out? Our own humanity. No, our no. own chemla. Are we cultivating chemla? Are we cultivating empathy and compassion for the other, the one we're supposed to reject, the stranger, the one who's not like us, the one that's been vilified and demonized, who we're supposed to hate? Are we doing enough to cultivate chemla so that we will reach out and not only help, but take in as our own the other. As our own. What does that mean? I mean, we think about so much. So much. The symbolic. It's there. Our own life, the life, meaning life, meaning the baby, which is a new life, are safe. It's a whole mentality, our own story, the way we have to shift our thinking about life and people around us and the way we think. Harris writes, this part of the story of Moses teaches us that the seeding of a new era of history can happen in the brief moment it takes for a single person to have a change of heart. In that moment, when compassion stirs one person to the point of some small act of resistance to a system of evil, we witness an aspect of reality that not any CEO, president, dictator, or supreme leader can eliminate from the human experience. Compassion's version of the butterfly effect. That's fabulous. Compassion's version of the butterfly effect. One small act of compassion against the evil of tyranny in fact, has effects that we cannot possibly begin to predict or imagine. And it creates a crack, writes Harris. It creates a crack at the very center of power, through which, ultimately, the light of redemption will shine. It is right at the center. It's in Pharaoh's own palace that this crack happens. Because no matter how big your fortress, says the wonderful, eternal, symbolic meaning of our story, which is just as real, right, as anything else, and the other level, is that no matter how strong and big your fortress is, that one act of compassion, of love, one small act creates a crack at the foundation. And then there's no stopping. What happens after that? And it will bring down the empire. Essentially, what she does brings down the empire. All of these women, Shifra and Pua, their act of chemla, Miriam's act of courage and chemla for her brother, Bat Paro's act of chemla, taking that baby out and keeping it. These are the small acts of great courage and love and strength and compassion that ultimately will bring down the empire of Egypt. What's the name of Harris's book? Moses. Just Google Moses and Harris, H-A-R-R-I, Maurice 
Harris. Okay. It's a beautiful book. Each chapter is on a different way that Moshe does not fit the paradigmatic understanding of what we have as a Jewish leader. In this case, he's adopted by a non-Jew. Right? He's raised with a Christmas tree in the living room. <laughs> Moshe is raised in, in the Egyptian palace by a non-Jewish woman. Right? So th there's one chapter on that, which I've been reading from because I taught it at the women's Seder teaching this past year. Um, and, you know, and then there are other ones as well, that he marries a non-Jew. Right? So he's intermarried. Right? So the whole exploration of that. So each chapter leaves another aspect of Moshe that, that puts him outside of what we think of as the norm, which is a fantastic and wonderful way right, to have people read themselves back into the Jewish community and Jewish identity. And it's just, it's fantastic. It's really fantastic. Moses, a stranger among us. Moses, a stranger among us. Ah, okay. Thank right? You. Getting to the whole point that he's not who you imagine, right? To be our, our hero. All right. A good start. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.